You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. It's becoming a tradition to do a Q&A Sunday or Sundays at the end of a sermon series. And so we finished up, Christians say, uh, the darndest things. I had a Freudian slip in the first service. I said dumbest things. And I got corrected. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just exposed what I really feel. But I thought there would be a lot of questions that would come out of that series, and there were. There were quite a few questions, and all of them really excellent questions. So what we're going to do is we're going to take two Sundays to, do, uh, to, to answer those questions. And what's really cool about this, this round of, uh, of questions is I really could, can, I can categorize each of the, uh, all the questions into two categories. And so the first category, which I'll, I'll address today, really deals with sin, addiction, uh, just what does it mean to follow Jesus? How do I engage my neighbors with the gospel? You know, when, you know, if my neighbors are just in blatant sin, you know, so I'm going to answer those today. And then uh, next week, I'll answer questions related to, like, there's a really great one, question I received last week on war. Like, everything that's going on from a serviceman, just what does the Bible say about that? And how do I wrestle with God's will for my life? So we're going to talk about God's sovereignty next week. Like, there was another really great question. I thought, man, this is, this is so good and probably uh, echoes a lot of uh, some of you in this room and just a kind of a, a lot of the struggle you might be having. In light of everything that's happening, happening in our world, does God always get his way? in a world that's evil. So that's next week, so come back next week. But uh, for this week, I have five questions I'm going to uh, really work hard uh, to answer. I figured I'd start with the, the easiest first. And by the way, I don't know who it was last time we did a Q&A Sunday, but somebody asked about tattoos. Are tattoos, you know, what does the Bible say about tattoos? Uh, I plan on hopefully answering that next week. I'm not ignoring you. Uh, like, like I never answered that question. I remembered that as I was answering these questions. So next week I hope to, to answer that. All right. So uh, question one. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity that if you can love at a standard equal to your peers, then you are not being charitable enough. Does Scripture support this? Yes. All right, next question. No. Uh, Jesus said when he was asked, hey, what is the, you know, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And he didn't stop there. This is the great and first commandment. Um, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. What Jesus was really saying is, hey, you know, the Ten Commandments are are still valid for today. And the first four of those commandments deal with our relationship with God, and the rest of the commandments deal with our relationship with our neighbor. And so we're called to that. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. I think in, in churches, we, we, try to, we try to work, I think we work hard at, at, at doing this, loving God um, with our whole being. But when it comes to our neighbors, uh, we stink at that sometimes, don't we? And so what, what does that look like? Well, the definition to charity is, or for charity, is generosity and helpfulness towards the needy or suffering. 
It could also mean benevolent goodwill towards uh, the love of humanity. And so uh, charity, or the lifeblood of charity is love. Okay? So just that's, I think that's the artery of charity. And, and charity is not just, just being nice, and charity is not just you know, donating things to, to, to people. It's more than that. So let's go to the next slide. Um, we can be charitable in the following ways. You can be charitable with your time, making yourself available for the benefit of others to meet their physical or, or material needs. Like maybe there's an elderly person in your neighborhood who cannot cut her own lawn or his own lawn. Being charitable would, would mean you going over to that person's home and mowing their lawn. Uh, or other things. Your energy, being present in the lives of others, may mean listening to those who need to be heard. You know, you could be present, or, or you could be physically there in the same room with somebody and not really be present. And so to be charitable is to be present, um, listening to those who need to be heard, uh, you, you, giving your attention to those who need to be seen, that's important, and uh, your engagement for, or your encouragement for the discouraged, you know, encouraging those who are discouraged. And by the way, like suicide rates are at an all-time high, uh, I think the pandemic has helped with that, like it helped in a bad way. Um, people need to be encouraged. And then your talents, the willingness to use your skills and talents to bless others. Every single one of you has been given certain talents um, by God. It's kind of, he's wired your personality in a certain way. Uh, you have skills that other people don't have. You can be charitable in that way. Or your money. I would say just your resources, your, your material resources, the freedom to bless others with food, shelter, clothing, etc., with your, with your own finances or your, your own material goods. To just be charitable in that way. We're called to be charitable. Uh, Jesus, uh, in affecting your life, when you placed your faith and trust in him, he... he he made you not only alive spiritually, but he's given you new appetites. He's given you new affections. He's given you the ability to love others in a way that you were not able to love before. And so the evidence of that is how we love one another. There's this verse in Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 22, and the, this is the outworking of a changed life that has been affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like as one who has been born again. And let's read this together, ready? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, if you're sitting next to somebody who knows you well, and you ask that person, hey, do I have this nailed down? They would probably say no, right? Like, we're not, like, I don't, there's nobody in this room that's perfect at any of these things, but this is a work in progress. Like, this is a process that God is doing in our lives. We should be better, we should look more like this than we did the day we first believed in Jesus. And so the outworking of that is, is being charitable. And the Bible supports that. We should be known as the only type of people on planet Earth 
that outloves the rest of the world, right? Not the most divided. Like the, the pandemic has, been, has exposed some things in the church that really need to be fixed. And so Jesus also said, he said, you know, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on, just, on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you uh, doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, what does he mean by that? He means that your character should be, be, it should be shaped by the character of God. And what did God do on your behalf? Out of his great love for you, he sent his son to die in your place for your sins, for my sins. And so that should be reflected in the way we live our lives and how we treat our neighbor, our neighbor who is our brother and sister in Christ and our neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. So that's, okay, so that's the answer to the first question. Question number two, the author of The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Never heard of the book, by the way, just letting you know. Uh, says Jesus' ministry was supported by wealthy women. Have you heard this before? No. Okay, next. No, I won't. I actually had to look it up. I, had to, I, had to, I went on Amazon to look up the book. And uh, here's my answer to that. We don't know if the women in Jesus' life were wealthy. Uh, we're never told that they were wealthy. We're told that they were generous. And there's, you could be generous and dirt poor, by the way. And so I, I think most likely the women that surrounded Jesus, uh, with the exception of maybe one, probably weren't super wealthy. And uh, we read in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, you know this, that soon afterwards they went through the, you know, he went through the cities, Jesus, and villages, proclaiming and bringing good news to the, of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, the, the disciples, and also some women, who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, and the, uh, the, the wife of Chusa, I think that's how you pronounce the name, um, Herod's household manager. Like, like, I don't know how that happened, but that's really interesting. Like, that God, that Jesus somehow encountered her, and she found herself in the company of Jesus. And Susanna, and many others who provided them out of their means, meaning they were generous. Uh, but I, I, I thought this was, this was an excellent question, and uh, also a, a great question in helping me highlight this fact, that some believe that the Bible is a male chauvinistic book, and it is not. Like Anybody who believes that has clearly not read the Bible, because... I mean, you consider some of these people, like the most important woman in Jesus' life was who? Mary, his mother. Right? She raised him. She cared for him. She nurtured him. And you want to know something? Thousands of years later, guess who is Jesus' mom still? Mary. They still share the same DNA. Uh, let that, <laughs> wrap your mind around that for a moment. Like, in evangelical circles, we have, like, dissed, you know, Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
out of a fear that we would somehow identify as being Catholic. You know, she's not a deity. She's a human being like you and like me. But she shares something that we don't all, that none of us share, that she gave birth to Jesus, the son of the living God. That's pretty amazing. And then uh, think of like Mary Magdalene. Like, like God pursued her, redeemed her, rescued her, and the first human being to, visit, to witness the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ that Jesus, that Jesus chose to reveal himself to were, were not his disciples, were not the guys, it was Mary. That's pretty significant. Like Easter's not too far away from now, but if you are inventing a story that Jesus rose from the grave in first century Judea, the last thing you want to do is include in that made-up story as the first witness being a, a woman in that culture. Because it was a male-dominated society, and women didn't really have much of a voice. But yet it was a woman who witnessed the, the, was the first person, person to witness the resurrection of Jesus. And then there are other people in Jesus' life that, that um, had a profound influence in, in his life uh, that were not just women. There were guys that, that God, you know, Raised up Joseph of Arimathea, who donated his tomb uh, to Jesus' body, and then Nicodemus, who brought um, after Jesus. Like, so Nicodemus is the guy who met up with Jesus at night because he was afraid, most likely, of what people would think about him. And we read at the end of the Gospel of John that he brought myrrh mixed with aloe to anoint Jesus' body, kind of like an embalming process to cover up the stench of death. Now, typically you would use a pound of, of that for a common person. Guess how much Nicodemus brought? 75 pounds. You want to know how much myrrh weighed per pound, or how much myrrh cost per pound? The equivalent would be about $4,000 in, in our day and age. So let's just be very uh, conservative and just say one-third of that 75 pounds was myrrh. That's a lot of money that Nicodemus brought. And guess when he brought it? Not at night. It was during the day. It was 75 pounds. It wasn't like he could just throw it under his cloak. It was, it was pretty obvious. So that's, so I, I just wanted to point that out. Qu yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It could be, yeah, it could be, yeah. So purple cloth was expensive, and so, right. But most of the women around Jesus' life were not wealthy women. Um, it was a combination of people who made his ministry possible that Jesus invited into that circle. But yeah, that's a good point. Huh? And the fish. <laughs> nice. Okay, let's go. Don't throw me off or we'll be here forever. Like, I'll be eating my Jimmy John sandwich in front of you. All right. <laughs> Christ calls us to be loving to others. How do, we see, how do we as Christians live this out in our world without accepting the ways of the world? And so another you know, excellent question. Another way I would ask this question is, can I love my neighbor while my neighbor's lifestyle or behavior is blatantly sinful? Or, just to kind of to get myself in trouble a little bit, I could phrase it this way. Can I refuse to make a cake for a couple 
because I don't agree with their lifestyle and still be loving. If that hurt a little bit, like, yes and no. Uh, I think it depends on, uh, on the, the circumstance. Here's what I will say. You cannot expect the world that doesn't know Jesus, who is dead to God spiritually, to act and behave as though they're alive to God and know who Jesus is. And in Christian circles, we kind of expect our neighbors, sometimes we expect our neighbors uh, to live righteous lives when they don't even know who Jesus is. They're spiritually dead. Uh, they're spiritually dead to God. And so, uh, in fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, in their, case, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Like they're blind. And when it comes to Jesus, I think we can take our cues from Jesus. Like, like I, another thing that really irked me was the whole wristband, what would Jesus do? Um, remember that in the 90s with bad, bad hair and bad Christian music and bad wristbands? Uh, what would Jesus do? Um, but there's some truth to that. Like, we can learn. Uh, we can learn how we ought to interact with the world by reading the Gospels and paying attention to the way, the way Jesus interacted with those who were spiritually dead. And in Luke chapter 5, verses 30 through 32, we read this, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, those were the religious guys, grumbled, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So in case you're wondering, what's the big deal with tax collectors, besides you have to pay taxes soon? Uh, well, back then, they were sellouts. They were considered sellouts. They were earning their income on the backs of impoverished Hebrew people. And so uh, what they were doing was horrible. And so these Pharisees and these scribes were like, why do you hang out with these people? Why do you hang out with them? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, like prostitutes and people with questionable character? And Jesus answered them. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, which were all sinners. Even, even these Pharisees and scribes were sinners. I found in pastoral ministry, I've been a pastor for a while now, I found the most difficult people to, to work with in helping them move forward in their, in their relationship with God are the really religious people. I'm not talking about the people who love Jesus. I'm talking about the religious people um, who, it seems like they're pretty devoid of a relationship with Jesus. They know all the verses, but, they have, but there's nothing there. Um, and so Jesus hung out with these people. And there are certain places you probably shouldn't hang out. Guys, like, you shouldn't, like, don't go to a strip club thinking that's your mission field, right? Like, that's bad, bad idea. Uh, if, you have certain, if you are prone to certain addictions, you probably shouldn't enter into an environment where you could be tempted to fall back into that addiction uh, or that sin. But uh, you should be spending time with people who don't know Jesus throughout the week. Like This should not be like the place where you engage people most of the time. It, like You are made for community, and you should be engaging people who don't know Jesus. All right, so there's that. And then I would say, uh, in doing that, don't ever do anything that goes against your conscience. 
because the Bible says to do so is to sin. And so, uh, so if your conscience forbids you to do something, then you should listen to your conscience, especially in light of the scriptures. All right, question number four. What did Jesus mean when he said, judge not that you be judged, that you be not judged? Are Christians allowed to judge others? Are we allowed to speak against immoral behaviors? I am so happy that this question was asked because uh, I, uh, I meant to include it in the sermon series, uh, Christians Say the Darndest Things, but I, I didn't. I don't know why I didn't. It's a really great one. Uh, it's, it flows from, I think, one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Judge not that you not be judged uh, without considering the context of what Jesus was saying in that, that statement. So again, I'm going to be doing a, ser- a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. We'll address this in that sermon series, but I just want to point something out to you. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? What is Jesus addressing here? Is he, addre- is he saying that it's immoral to judge another person? No. You know what he's saying? It's immoral to be a hypocrite. So you want to point out the speck in your brother's eye, but you've got a log in your eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take out the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Does he stop there? No, he continues. And then you will see, the, see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He doesn't say you don't, that you cannot judge. And what I mean by, what's meant by judging here is pulling somebody aside and say, hey man, this is going on in your life. I see this. I'm concerned. You shouldn't be practicing this. You, you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, here's why. This is what I read in the Bible. That's the kind of judging. And hey, can I help you out of that? You know, um, Jesus said, uh, make sure you examine your heart before you do that, though. He doesn't say you shouldn't judge people. If somebody is in sin, you should, if you love them, you should go up to that person gracefully, charitably, gently, and address it, right? Uh, here's a, a good illustration of, <laughs> of what I've seen in evangelical circles. A couple, a heterosexual couple, living together, who was quick to point out the sin of a same-sex married couple who are together. First, they should address their living situation and their sin before they start pointing at the other sin. Does that make sense? Because some of you are like, whoa, what did he just say? I just said it. <laughs> like, like, it like marriage is definitely between, a, is ordained by God, it's between a man and a woman. Sex is not to be experienced and engaged in outside of the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. But um, in evangelical circles, like we are not known for our stellar record on marriages. Right? That's really quiet right now. Okay. Uh, 
So, and here's, here's the kind, so later on in chapter 7 of Matthew, Matthew 7, verse 18, Jesus continues. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. And, and he says this, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Meaning, by the evidence of their life, you'll know whether or not they belong to me or they do not belong to me. And, uh, and so, so that's the context of, of that like, verse, judge not, at least you be judged. And then there are some other passages. We don't have time to go through all of them because I really need to get to the last question. But I'll just name a, 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 a highlight a few verses. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, it says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, it's in the Bible, Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. It's talking to the church, by the way. Uh, another passage, James chapter 5 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that, whatever, that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's in the Bible. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, I, don't, I forgot to put this on the, on, on the slides, but it's, it's written uh, for, you know, church, uh, towards church leadership. It's, it's addressing church leadership like elders. Or pastors, the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Oh, thank you. Sharon, just put that up there. Um, so, so there's that. Uh, so does the Bible forbid all forms of judging? No. In fact, here, here's something you need to hear. Inherent in being a genuinely loving person is the willingness to speak the truth in love, even if it hurts the other person. Um, and in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, we need a lesson on this. As, as the church, like capital C church, especially in America, we have a habit of kicking our own, or we're known for kicking our own when they're down, Right? But let's read this together, ready? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is loving one another. How do we, how do, if somebody's caught in a transgression, we see that person you know, caught up in sin, how do we address that sin? Well, one, make sure you examine your heart, you know, uh, you who are spiritual, and, and how, how do you do that? You restore them in a spirit of what? Gentleness. You don't go up to them and say, you idiot! Let me smack you across the face. No, it's, you gently restore them. Um, put on your kid gloves. Sometimes, speaking the truth, though, means you need to be pretty blunt. Uh, keep, and then here's this other important one. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then bear one another's burdens. What does that look like? Can you do this alone? 
It's a rhetorical question. No. <laughs> Bear one another's burdens. Like we're meant for community. Uh, all right. And then the final question. Kind of reworded it a little bit, but I have a friend who reads a Bible, attends, uh, attended a church where the Bible was taught regularly, and seemed to be a solid Christian. Now my friend is participating in a lifestyle that the Bible labels as a sin. My friend still attends church regularly, reads her Bible, and seems to love Jesus. Is my friend still a Christian? That is a really great question. And my answer is, maybe, maybe not. And uh, let me share some, some verses with you. Uh, and they'll be on the screen. First uh, John chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. Let's read this together, ready? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We need to just be reminded of that. All of us are jacked up. <laughs> we all sin. We all sin. But uh, when you've been redeemed, when you've been rescued by Jesus Christ, when you went from being spiritually dead, spiritually blind, to being made spiritually alive with eyes to see, God gave you new affections, he gave you new appetites, and you are progressively looking, you ought to be looking more and more like Jesus. But later on in, the God, in John, 1 John uh, in chapter 2, it says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commands or his commandments, is a what? A liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Here's a, here's a scary verse, scary passage. Hebrews chapter 6. For it is impossible. This is written to Christians, by the way. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, what is that? The gospel. They tasted it. They've experienced it on some level and have shared in the Holy Spirit. You've, you've participated in the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Maybe they came to church. In this context, these are people who were fellowshipping in a local uh, assembly of Christians who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. They've rejected um, either the gospel or they've, they've you know, dived into some form of sin. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Does that sound scary? Anybody? Yes. Um, let's just go on to Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a what? A sacrifice of sins, or for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy and on, on, on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Bear with me, it does get better. <laughs> um, after this verse, by the way. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So here's my answer, ready? 
if you are, I, I don't think these verses are addressing the person who falls into sin, feels bad about it, and repents and wants to be free from that. I think these verses are addressing the person who falls into sin, says, I don't care what God says. I don't care what his word says. I know how I feel, and it feels right. Therefore, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I do not believe that that person can have assurance of salvation. Just because you said a prayer, I said this a couple weeks ago and it shocked some of you, but just because you said a prayer when you were young or at some point in your life doesn't mean that because you said the words of that prayer that you are guaranteed to enter into heaven. What guarantees you to enter into heaven is that you are trusting, that you've trusted in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that that was enough for your sins, and that he rose from the grave, that you believe in that, and that you are leaning in on that. How many of you made sure the chair was going to hold you up before you sat in it? Did you? Seth did, because he's my son. Um, and, and one other person, maybe because you fell once. We had that happen in the church I planted. Somebody sat in the chair, and it went boom. And um, uh, I thought, that person will never look at chairs the same way. But, but when, when you came in here, most of you assumed that the chair was going to hold you up. You're sitting in the chair now. Are you anxious about sitting in the chair that you're sitting in now? No. Uh, you're trusting that it's going to hold you up. It's the same type of trust uh, in, in believing that Jesus Christ is enough to, 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 for your sins to be forgiven. And, uh, and it's not just a head thing. You're invested in this. Like, uh, you're trusting in this, in, in what Jesus did on the cross. For that person, I think it's impossible for that person to remain in habitual, ongoing sin and be flippant about it for the long haul. Does that make sense? And that's just being, a, I've been a pastor for a while, that's just what I've seen, and, it's, and, I'm, I'm, and it seems to jive with me uh, with what I read in the Bible. I do not believe you can lose your salvation. That's why I believe it's either you are saved or you're not. And if you are saved, your life is progressively being shaped and changed as, as you follow King Jesus. That is, uh, for the person who's flipping about their sin, who doesn't care about what God thinks, versus the person who's like, I hate that I did this. I hate that I continue doing this. I want to be free from this. I want liberty from this. I'm not sure how to get out of this. Those are two different types of people. And for that person, the issue, I don't believe, is an issue of that person's salvation. For that person, it's an issue of there are, some strong, there are some sins in a person's life and addictions in a person's life that are very difficult to be free from. And um, my guess is, statistically speaking, a bunch of you are in this room and you have stuff in your life that you want to be free from and you haven't been able to be completely free from and it just it eats you up every time you fall into that sin. And uh, I want to offer some hope. But before I do that, like this week was, was difficult for me. So on Wednesday, I got a phone call. Um, this is Wade. Last June, there were four, I think five people that were baptized. I don't know if it was in the first service or the second service. All of them were recovering addicts. And, uh, 
I got a phone call on Wednesday that Wade died of a drug overdose. He was clean when I baptized him. He grew up surrounded by addiction and drug abuse and substance abuse, and he battled it all of his life. After the time I spent with Wade, and when I baptized him, I really believe that Wade is in heaven. His daughter, Cammie, painted this for me. This is one of my favorite, this is my favorite picture in my office. It, it hangs between Spider-Man, so that's saying a lot, by the way, and uh, this, this painting of uh, these nail-pierced hands holding up a broken pot. In 2018, Cammie's mother died of a drug overdose. Cammie is about the age of my youngest son, Seth. Um, that was hard. Some of you are battling stuff nobody knows about that you want to be free from. And... Uh, and it's going to be most likely a lifelong battle. There is a pathway to freedom that I see in the Bible, though. This is not some recipe that if you do this, you're not going to struggle with anything. I mean, the Christian life feels like a waltz, doesn't it? It feels like two steps forward, one step back. I think if we're honest, a lot of times it feels like two steps back, one step forward. And it's hard. That's why I'm not quick to like, look at a person who's engrossed in sin and say, ah, oh, that person's not a Christian because they're just not repenting. You don't know. God knows. But I definitely don't think that that person who's flipping about their sin can be 100% assured that they're saved. The verdict is still out. But here, here's a pathway that I, that I see in the scriptures, and I hope it encourages you just as I was processing this. If you are a Christian, God has given you his Holy Spirit to empower you. Now, I, encur I, I, I encourage you to write these verses down. The manuscript of, the of these answers will be on the website sometime this week, but you should look up these verses. Like Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and following says, For this reason I bow my knees, the words are not on the screen, by the way, before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through, a, through his spirit in your inner being. Strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit. Like if you're a Christian, God has given you his Holy Spirit to empower you to live a victorious life. Like you cannot live the Christian life on your own. You need power. God has given you the Holy Spirit to enable you to live that way. That doesn't mean you're going to be sinless, as we already saw. If you say you're sinless, you're a liar, that's, and the truth is not in you. Secondly, regardless of what you feel about your sin, you are not trapped. It might seem like you're trapped, but you're not trapped. There's this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these verses 12 through 13, it says, Therefore that... Anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Now, that's really great wisdom right there because what I've found in my encounter with addicts 
is that the moment that they think that they're strong enough to do it on their own is the most dangerous place that they could be in at the moment. And, 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 it's, and this is true for sin. There are sins in your, that are in your sphere of influence. There are areas of your life that you are more weaker to or susceptible to than other sins. And to think that you're in a moment of strength that you can stand against that is a, is a posture of pride that will most likely lead to you falling into that sin. But he goes on to say, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. What is that verse saying? What it's saying is that there's no sin that you find yourself struggling with that is so, so pervasive that there's absolutely no way that you can escape it. That's what it's saying. Are there certain sins that are more difficult to, to flee from than others? Well, yeah. But you're not trapped. Third, by the way, all this came after uh, I settled on these questions. So I was thinking about this last question, and then I found out about Wade's death, and then I thought, um, we need to address addiction. Third, your problem is not your circumstance or anybody else. Your problem is you. I, and it's not just addicts, it's people who are just caught in sin. When they're at a moment where there is no, where the reality is, is that they're not going to experience freedom, it's that moment when they're pointing to everything else but themselves. Their circumstances or another person. It's very common with addicts who are not ready to pursue being, you know, that difficult road of, of being, becoming sober. Your problem is not your circumstances or anybody else. Your problem is you. And so James says this, uh, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has, to, when he has stood the test, he will, also, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But listen to this. Says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Remember the sermon, you know, when I addressed the statement, just trust your heart, don't trust your heart, it's a liar? That's, that's, we're getting at that here, right? Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings Fourth, death. So, that's number three. Four, fourth, you need a wartime ethic in dealing with your sin. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is the Sermon on the Mount again, by the way. Um, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. What is Jesus saying now? That you should maim yourself? 
Because there was a season in church history where they thought that they should do that, you know, flogging and that kind of thing. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is, whatever that thing is that causes you, that, that, that is your trigger point to fall into that sin, to dive into that sin, that addiction, get rid of it. Um, I, I, there was a, one of the guys that was baptized uh, uh, that same day, Larry, he moved from one geographical location to Cheyenne to get away from the addiction. Um, sometimes you need to be that radical. Uh, if it's pornography, cut off, cut off your, your screen time. Um, if it's whatever, alcoholism, whatever it is, get radical, develop a wartime ethic. And then here's the other thing. You can't do this alone. You need help. You need somebody who, who, who you trust enough to come alongside you who's able to ask you the difficult and hard questions and to give that person the freedom to ask you those questions. We were made for community. You have been given, the, the, if you're a Christian, you've been given the Holy Spirit to empower you and God has also give, gifted you the church to come alongside you to encourage you and help you in your vic become victory or victorious in your victory. So find a person. Give that person permission to ask you the difficult questions. Come to celebrate recovery. Come to, go to celebrate recovery. Cheyenne Hills has a celebrate recovery on Friday. There's a few yeah, and there's one on Monday. I saw Tammy. Where's Tammy? Or Tanya, I mean. Tanya? Where are you? Oh, you're right in front of my face. So Tanya, the, you go to a group on Monday. You're part of that. And what is it? What's, where, where do they meet? Um, well, just raise your hand. Here, Ryan, stand up. Tanya, can you? So talk to these two people um, if, if you want to get plugged into Celebrate Recovery or, or you know, begin that pathway towards uh, sobriety. Um, but you need help, and that's the point. And so... Uh, and if you, if you need to talk to me, talk to me. I'm, I will make myself available to, to listen. Or the person who you came to church with, talk to that person. The first, the first step is just to be honest with what's really going on in your life. And so, All right, so that's it. Let me pray, and then we will, we will get started. Before I pray, um, if you're not a Christian, the very first step you need to make is you need to give your life to Jesus. That doesn't mean all your problems are going to go away. But if you want to go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, alive if you want to go from, from um, you know, grasping at straws, hoping that maybe that's your purpose in life, to discovering what your real purpose is, and that is a relationship rooted in Jesus, then you need to give your life to Jesus. Jesus lived a life that you could never live. He died he, a perfect life, a life we could never live. He died a death that each and every one of us deserved under the wrath of God. And on the third day, he rose from the grave and he did all of that because of God's great love for you. And so that is your first step. And for the rest of us who, who, who you are a Christian, um, I would encourage you, if you need to talk to somebody, talk to that person um, to begin that process of, of victory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for everyone in this room. Thank you for what you're doing in and through our lives. Thank you for the power of the gospel that does transform lives. 
Thank you for your, your Holy Spirit, the second mem- or the third member of the Trinity who empowers us and, and enables us to live the life that you called us to live. God, thank you for your church, the bride of Jesus Christ that you so dearly love. God, you, you didn't mean for us to do the Christian life alone. We're meant to do it in community, and so I thank you for that community. And thank you for what you're doing in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.